Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, and who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Well, uh, any pastor will tell you that if you give him enough time, he will come up with enough uh, material for many sermons, and I intended not to preach many sermons today or this morning, but uh, I have many sermons in mind. One particular matter, topic, uh, was really indelibly printed on my heart during my sabbatical, and that is the topic of discipleship and faithfulness in discipleship. As God would have it, uh, last time we were in Mark was about three months ago. And you know we're going through Mark. I'm preaching through Mark, right? So three months ago was the last time I preached through uh, a sermon on Mark as we're going successively through the gospel. And in God's timing and his purposes, our text today has everything to do with discipleship. And it's poignantly given to us and I pray that it'll be beneficial to us as it coincides not only with this desire that I have for you to be faithful disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also to see what that means. Matthew and Mark tells us that it was after John had been arrested that he withdrew to Galilee, this region that Jesus would be ministering as he has begun his ministry already. We saw there in Mark 1, 14 and 15, that he begins his preaching ministry. Now this Galilean ministry continues all the way to the end of chapter 10 in Mark's gospel. So it takes a large portion of Jesus' life, Mark does, and he records this ministry in this region of Palestine. And so it's not a, something we should gloss over. It's a very important aspect of Mark's purpose of writing that we know what Jesus did during his time of ministry in Galilee. And that is important for us as we come to this text today. Because when Mark moves from the preaching ministry of Jesus in verses 14 and 15, he moves directly into the calling of four disciples, as we'll see today. But there are things that happen between those two events. And Mark doesn't spend any time giving us any background, any context, any geography change. He says Jesus is a preacher, and now he's a caller. He's a preacher, and he's a caller. And we need to understand something when we come to the text as they were given to us. Mark is writing with a very specific purpose in mind. And yes, it's good to come to Mark and say, what does Mark say? What does Matthew say? We'll see some of that. We'll say, what does Luke say? We'll see some of that. We'll say, what does John say? And we oftentimes find ourselves becoming uh, synthesizers of the gospel narratives. 
What did Jesus do at what time and where was he at the geographical location? And we think that we need to summarize all of these uh, in our brains, and it's good to know them, and I, I support you getting a harmony of the gospel. It's a very good thing to have, a good tool to have. But we also need to learn what the given evangelist, the gospel authors, are doing when they are recording by inspiration their message. This was a message that Mark recorded for the churches to receive, in a sense, on its own. In other words, we could have this message from Mark and be sufficiently taught so as the way of salvation. Now, in God's great plan, we have a canon of Scripture. And we shouldn't give away any of those, and we shouldn't neglect any of them. But we also need to see that God's word sufficiently given in this book will teach us what we need to know for salvation. And Mark's style is one of immediacy. In fact, this word immediately in the ESV is used nine times in the first chapter. Over 30 times in the the entire book of Mark. Mark uses that term immediately, and that is the way he moves. He moves quickly from scene to scene, and his priority is the person of Jesus Christ. You see, it's so easy for us when we start talking about discipleship to get the focus on us, which is exactly wrong. When we start talking about discipleship, we need to start talking about the one whom we are disciples of, because it makes all the difference in the world. In a sense, everybody is a disciple of somebody. It's who we are disciples of that makes the difference, as we'll see. The first point this morning is that Jesus calls Simon and Andrew in verses 16 through 18, And in typical Markan fashion, he blazes through Christ's preaching ministry, the context, the background, which if you want to know a little bit more, I think John chapter 1, verse 35 through 44, if you want to look up the context, there's a little bit of background. Did Jesus know Andrew? Did he know Peter? Did he know James? Did he know John? Because what we're seeing today doesn't give any of that information. And I think it's that way on purpose. Four insights I want to bring to your attention with regards to Christ's call, Christ's call for discipleship of especially Simon and Andrew here in verses 16 and 18. But some of these apply. In fact, they do apply to James and John as well as as follows. Verse 16 and 17 teach us that it was a particular call. Jesus' call was particular. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. Simon is Peter. If I say Peter, no, it's Simon. It's also Cephas in the New Testament. But this is Peter, Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, the language of verse 16 seems almost incidental, almost accidental. It's almost like Jesus is stretching his his legs for an evening walk. My wife and I, we actually got to go on walks in the mainland, something we did when we were 
first married. It's not easy to do when you don't have people watching your kids. The kids don't always want to go for a walk, especially at night. There's not a lot of uh, paths where we live to go for a walk at night without getting ran over or at least in danger of it. But we got to go on a lot of uh, walks at night, and it's enjoyable. And some people might think, well, Jesus is out for an evening stroll. And, and whatever comes next is sort of just Jesus on the fly just makes these decisions. You would be wrong to suppose that. And the first reason for that is this call was on purpose, and it was particular because this abs- almost certainly, let me say that, I don't want to say absolutely as a matter of fact, but I would say almost certainly this calling comes at night. Now, you think about your life at night and you have a nice flashlight or you have lights in the street, but in those days, a nighttime walk would have been very dark. You go out to Kokea, you go out to Polehale at night, you go out to even some regions around here at night, and you might get a good idea of what it would have been like then. A little candlelight, a little lantern maybe, but there was not a lot of light to light your path at night. One of the reasons we believe, I believe this was at night, is because the Greek word that describes the net that Andrew and Peter were, Peter, there we are, Simon were using, was a net that was particular to be casted around the shoreline. It it wasn't a, a huge net that would be, driven across a long part of the sea. It was a round net with weights on it, and it would be cast, and it would go into a circle, and it would fall down, and at night, the, the, the fish would be closer to the shoreline. And notice where Jesus is walking. He's walking on the shore, and there's nothing about his voice being raised. There's nothing about them being off into the distance. Most, certain, most certainly of all, this call happens at night. Jesus is walking at night, and he, therefore, we can assume, knows what he's doing. The second reason why I believe this is a particular call is that Galilee is a very productive fishing location. In those days, fish was the main meat source. It wasn't cows, it wasn't sheep. Fish was the primary a meat source for those in this region, even Rome. There, uh, there was a historian, Josephus, who was a general in the army of Israel when Rome came and attacked Jerusalem. He says that he mustered 230 ships, fishing vessels, from the shores of Galilee to help with the fighting of that war. 230 Now, that's not considered all because there were Roman ships, there were Greek vessels, there were other vessels that would supply Egypt in that. In other words, this is to say there were a lot of fishermen. This is not Jesus going off into the night and there's only a handful of people around. There must have been ships, there must have been fishermen on every little inlet out there or many of the inlets. Jesus was going to these people on purpose, is what the picture I want you to see. Third, the Sea of Galilee is not a little pond. It's 84 square miles. Some say uh, 16 miles by 7. Some t- you know, There's different ways of measuring this, but it's a large body of water. 
This is not a little space. Jesus is going to a particular spot on a large lake, as we would call it now, but sea is appropriate as well. Fourth, this is very contrary to what we would have expected in those days. They would have expected. In those days, a master or a teacher or a rabbi would not have gone seeking his disciples. In those days, a disciple would go and seek a teacher. And the disciples would be credentialed, by the way. They would have some learning. They would have something to tell the teacher, the rabbi, here's why you should accept me as your student. This is not the way we see Jesus moving. The call is from the master, from the teacher, from the rabbi, from, as we will know, the Lord. And he goes to, well, we can at least say they weren't institutional scholars, can we? These were fishermen. These were laborers. They probably were not nearly as ignorant as sometimes we make them out to be. They knew the Torah very well. They knew what God had required them of the Old Covenant, at least what the rabbis would have taught them. But these were by no means the scholars. These were by no means the great ones intellectually of the day. These were regular folk. We read in 1 Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. What's interesting about that is Paul was the opposite. He was wise according to worldly standards. But you know what he says about that? I count it as dung for the knowledge of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having him, all of that learning, all of that worldly enviable positions that I had and stature that I had. We admire smart people. I admire smart people. Paul says, I admire Christ. And here Christ is calling himself to himself. Imagine this. He says later that upon you, Peter, and meaning not just Peter, but the apostles, I will build my church on fishermen. This is why it's not about the disciples. It's about the disciples' Lord. It's about who they were disciples of. Fifth, theologically speaking, we know Jesus did nothing by accident. <laughs> you, you listen a little bit of what the gospel writers have to say, and Jesus says, it's time for me to go here. It's time for me to go there. It's not my time yet. Jesus knows what he's doing in every step he takes while he's on earth. This was a particular call to a particular people. That's the first thing I want us to see. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and what, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up the last day. I am the good shepherd, he said. I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus was on a walk that night, and he was looking for his sheep the ones that the Father gave him. 
You did not choose me, he told these men later, but I chose and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Beloved, one of the necessary doctrines in the New Testament for us to understand if we are in Christ Jesus is that God has sought us out particularly. He has set his love upon you. And I want you to know that that doctrine doesn't, should not come to you and think, well, I have so much to offer God, that's why. There's so much good in me, that's why. God saw me and he saw me in distinction from all the other unbelievers out there. And he said, there's something especially good in you that... That is not the way we learn salvation. What we learn in the scriptures is God has loved you in spite of you. To show his greatness in love. And to bring us before him as worshipers who only boast in the Lord and not in ourselves. But it's good for you to know the love of God is not an accident towards you. It's not an accident. Second, Mark wants us to see that Jesus' call was authoritative. Jesus said to them, follow me. It can be translated, come. Follow me. This is not, would you come, please? This is not, hey, if you have time, I got a lot to teach you. I got a lot to show you. I'm the Messiah. He is commanding them. It is an imperative. This is an imperative, this calling. Follow me. And the same force is used in verse 20 with, Jesus, with John and James. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus does not merely invite them, he commands them. Mark wants us to recognize this. You see, Mark could have given us the background that I think is helpful. He could have given us the background of, of Jesus and Andrew and Philip and Peter up by the Jordan where John was baptizing. He could have shown that little part of the narrative and said, you see, they sort of knew each other a little bit. But Mark is not interested in that. He's interested in showing us the authority of Jesus here. He's not saying Jesus called them because he met them earlier. How many people did Jesus meet earlier? How many people did Jesus preach to already? Mark wants us to know Jesus has the authority to command things from us. And in fact, he has the authority to command everything of us. To drop our vocation. What we're good at. Fishing. <laughs> I bet they were good at fishing. I'm a terrible fisherman. But it takes a lot of knowledge to learn how to be good at fishing. I think so. People talk about tides. They talk about flies. They talk about this weight and that. You know, Jimmy, I go out fishing with him once or twice once, and he's got all this equipment, and I don't know how to run one single thing. 
on that. And if you want to be good, you, you've got to know some things. And he says, drop it. That just doesn't mean that they cease fishing forever, but they have a priority that changes, don't they? Later, we know they do fish later on. That knowledge is still there. They still use it, but it's prioritized. When the Lord says, come follow me, they drop their nets and they go because he said so. Third, this call is a purposeful call. He says, follow me, I will make you. It's an effective and purposeful call. I will make you become fishers of men. Not follow me and, and, and you can sort of just learn your way into this. This language is creational. You ever think of that? You ever think to yourself, man, I am, I'm failing as a disciple. I'm not as good as a disciple as I need to be. I know that, and you're repentant of it, and you just seem like, oh, man, I'm just not getting anywhere. Jesus says it's up to him. He's going to make you. Them, fishers of men. As I've argued before, the gospel is not merely the truth of Christ to be believed for entrance into heaven. It is the truth of Christ's life and death and resurrection which we believe, which we also, which we are also, by which we are also empowered to change by the Holy Spirit. And that's God's work. It's God's work. This is creational. God, Christ has a creational, a new creation purpose when he calls you to be his disciples. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Now you say, man, I failed. Well, you see, the word of God was written by fallible men, but by an infallible inspirer, the Holy Spirit. And in his wisdom, the wisdom of God and the, Holy, the person of the Holy Spirit, he gives us illustrations of fallible disciples to tell you that you're not alone, but that it's God who's going to complete his work that he began in you. One of the main fallible disciples that we see all over the pages of the New Testament is a man named Simon, right? Peter. He's our favorite disciple because he's falling all over himself. It makes us feel a little bit better when we read about Peter. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 21 through 23, the most sobering reality of why he came. He's explaining it to his disciples. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The most important aspect of his coming, he's telling his disciples, and Peter took him aside. Can you imagine Peter? He's not, you know, he doesn't want to say this in front of an audience, but he's going to take Jesus aside. Come here, let me correct you. Let me just set you straight. Don't you know who you are? You're the Messiah. You're going to go to Jerusalem, set up the kingdom, destroy Rome. You're not going to do any of that stuff. 
He rebukes Jesus. The disciple rebukes his master. He doesn't just say, here, I'm going to correct you. He rebukes him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. That's authority Peter is speaking with. As he uses the term, curios, Lord, he says, no. (laughs) Far be it from you. What a disciple. There's no hope for this guy. You think to yourself, there's no hope for me. Look, you don't know what I did yesterday, Pastor. You don't know what's going around in my mind. I love Jesus, but I can't seem to get over these temptations. This man said to Jesus, no. You will not fulfill the purpose of your coming. And you say, well, how does Jesus react? Gentle-like, lamb-like? No, he says, get behind me, Satan. And here's the problem, is that when we get the discipleship, lordship relationship out of whack with Jesus, we don't get the kingdom priorities right. Listen to what he says. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your minds on things of God, but on things of man. And so we think, well, that's the end of it, right? Peter's not a faithful disciple. But that's not the end of it. In fact, Peter does worse things. And you know what? Jesus tells him, you're going to do worse. You're going to deny me three times, Peter. And Peter does. He denies Jesus. He curses. He imposes a curse on himself. A denial so strong that I should be damned if I am lying that I don't know this man. You know who holds Peter? You know who perseveres Peter as a disciple? The one who is offended by Peter. Jesus says, you will deny me three times. Because Satan demanded that he have you. you. You can imagine Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And he says, Satan tried to deter you from the cross. I did that. Satan's saying to, to God, imagine. Satan's saying to God or to Jesus, I tried to deter you from the cross. And look what you did to me. You said, get, get out of here, Satan. Now this man tried to do that to you. And I want him. Tell him to get out of here. Tell him to go. Jesus says he demanded to have you so that he would sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. If you are Christ's disciple, he has died for you. And he intercedes for you. And Satan's accusations are not going anywhere to condemn you. And then he says, 
when, after you have done this, he says, when you turn, Peter, after my prayers are answered, Peter, strengthen the brethren. I have a purpose for you. That's why I called you. You are out there and you're saying, man, I am struggling with these sins, these temptations. If you love Christ, you will not fail of him because he, as your master, will keep you. And he has a purpose for his calling of you. Be encouraged by that. Don't let yourself be discouraged to the point that you do not continue to follow Christ. Listen to what the word here says to us. But this is remarkable. Notice what Jesus says he will recreate these men to be. I will make you fishers of men. Now, some conclude that Jesus is making a play on words here to the effect that he's just saying, you're fishermen, I'm going to make you fishers of men. It's just a play on words. This is a teaching uh, tool. But I think it's much deeper than that. I think we have to come to this and we have to say, who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what is he doing with these men? Jesus has come not to condemn the world. John 3, 17 says, God has given the Son not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus is appointing, he's calling these disciples at first, these 12, to establish the gospel and the truth and the ongoing church ministry on them. We get that through the word of God, the New Testament. What does it mean to be fishers of men? Well, I think it's not just a play on words, and one of the reasons I believe that is because we see Old Testament, Old Testament allusions to this idea of fishing for men. The only thing is every time we see it in the Old Testament, we see it in regards to God's judgment of man. So, in, for instance, Jeremiah 16, 16 if you want to go there, let's go there. It might help us to see what. This is, this is what we see. All, perhaps there's only one exception, and I believe that's found in Ezekiel 37. But every other instance of fishing, the allusion to fishing, has to do with the Lord's judgment, often of Israel, but also of the unbelieving nations sometimes. This is of Israel. Behold, I, will, I am sending for my fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. Who's them? Them is Israel. This refers to their judgment. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will double repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. And this is the way it goes in these other, area, uh, other places in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 29 verse 4, Ezekiel 38 verse 4, Amos 4.2, Habakkuk 1. I know all of those uh, references you may not get, but I just want you to understand that there is a 
a regulative usage of this visual of fishing that has to do with judgment. But Jesus was not sent into the world to condemn the world. Jesus has a different purpose in his first coming. And so, like is so often the case, there was a misunderstanding of why the Messiah would first come. The Messiah would first come as a savior. The way he would do that was through humility, becoming lamb-like. Not as a conquering king, as a lion. And this is why so often Jesus' ministry was misunderstood. And this is also why I believe in this saving context of why Jesus came. We need to understand that Jesus is calling these men to himself and promising to create, recreate them so that they will be instruments of salvation for sinners. To save them from judgment. To save them from the wrath that is to come. And how have they been, how are they used so? They are used so, if you remember the Great Commission. Go into all the world. All authority is given unto me in heaven and on the earth, Jesus says. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you, even unto the end of the age. The promise of recreation to make fishers of men has to do with the bringing of the message and the power of salvation, which is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message the apostles were given, which has been given to us, by the word of God that we hold often in our laps and all of us in our hearts if we're followers of Christ. You see, this same purpose of discipleship is still with us. We have a message. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. What does the scripture say there? What does Mark say there? He's concerned with what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You and I are here as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ with this same calling, to be fishers of men. Now that doesn't mean we all have the same calling as Peter and Andrew and James and John and the apostles but we are all called as the church to be disciples of Jesus. And as disciples of Jesus, we are called to be fishers of men. And this call was effective. Verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. This is one of the immediates of Mark's concern. And this is the call for disciples. No one is a disciple of Jesus that doesn't regard him and his authority and his calling with the utmost dignity and importance, the preeminence, as we'll see. But notice, this is the reaction of disciples. When they are called by their Lord, 
they drop what they're doing and they follow him. Secondly, the second main point, and we'll move through this fairly quickly, the Sons of Thunder, verses 19 through 20. I know it's hot. We won't spend much time here as much of what I've said already relates to these, but I want to see two points with regards to these two verses. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. There's two aspects here I want us to see. First, Jesus' disciples must hold to him, first of all. You see, Andrew and Simon, they're alone. They leave their vocation and they follow Jesus, and that's true. Anything that Jesus calls us to do as disciples, we must do it. Jesus hasn't called us all to leave our vocations, but he's called you to be a disciple in the vocation you're at, in the very least. But here we see that Jesus must have primacy over every relationship in our lives. They are in the boat, mending their nets. They're not casting them. They're mending their nets, and they're with their father Zebedee. Now in those days, what your father did, that's what you did. This was your business because it was your father's business. That's what Jesus said. I'm here about my father's business. Jesus calls them away from their father. Without asking. He doesn't ask Zebedee. Mark wants us to see this. He doesn't ask him. He doesn't say, Zebedee, is this okay if I take your sons away? Now, we also need to know that Jesus doesn't ruin Zebedee's business. Zebedee has hired servants. It's very clear that Zebedee is a fairly well-to-do man. A fisherman with hired servants had a good business. He was well-to-do. But even that, we need to not have stand in our way. If Jesus calls us, we go. One of the costs of discipleship is sometimes leaving father and mother and children. Whoever it is, whatever it is, when Jesus calls sinners to himself, we go. And we follow him at all costs. That's the second thing I want us to see. These left their employment. All of them did. Andrew left. Simon left. John, James, all left. You know, Jesus, this means they, they left their, their income, their earnings. We know that they live just on the generosity often of others as we see the ongoing nature of Jesus' ministry. They go from town to town. In those days, the hospitality of the Jewish people were to take care of those who were being taught by their disciples. Rabbis and disciples were be to, they were to be cared for by the, by the people of Israel. And often they were turned away because Jesus is the one we're following. And Jesus says, the foxes have nests and the bird or the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes. I have a stone. You better believe the disciples were sleeping on stone. They left their money. They left their relationships. Why? Because the Lord had called them. 
I just want to give you a, a bit of uh, application to that. And a call to persevere as disciples. Now, I have already said that our perseverance will rest on the Lord who called us. It is really about the person and the work of Christ to keep his disciples. But as I was traveling around, especially the Northeast, but even in, in Great Falls, Montana, the evidence is so clear of those Protestants. I'm not talking about cults. I'm not talking about even Roman Catholics. I'm talking about Protestant churches that are not only dead, but they are enemies of the cross. They're enemies of Christ, and yet they claim to be disciples of Christ still. But they don't do what he says. They don't care about following Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They care about the things of this world. They care about status. They care about their huge cathedrals and how pretty they are. And those cathedrals are more alive than the people inside of them attending those churches. I saw cathedral after cathedral after cathedral in the Northeast, some of the richest history of the Christian faith in this country, dead and enemies of the cross. And they put it out there for everybody to see what their priorities were. Climate change, LGBTQ, all of this stuff, and not the urgency for salvation for souls not fishers of men, being admirable in the eyes of their fellow hedonists, materialists, idolaters, is what they were about. They were not following Christ. They were not disciples any longer. And it broke my heart. How many millions of people walk by these buildings? And there's nothing then. There's nothing there for them. But an antiquated shell that will one day fall down. And that's not what Christ came for. He came for souls. He came for disciples. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came for our children. You see... Discipleship has all these components, but discipleship has a person at the bottom of it all. A person that came to bring good news for sinners, preaching repentance. Repent and believe the gospel. And these false churches don't call anybody to repentance. They call everybody to self-sufficiency. And there's no salvation in it because there's no discipleship. There is no following Jesus in it. There's no cross of self-denial. There's no having the right orientation of the things of God. Being willing to sacrifice, give up everything for the sake of gaining Christ. Christ. How does Mark describe this Jesus who called these men? In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. I want to encourage you. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, know him. Follow him. There is no discipleship without following Christ. There is no Christian church without following Christ. There is no saint who doesn't follow Christ. There is no bride of Christ. Those churches are dead because they do not follow their, what they say is their Lord. They have become their own lords and have ceased to be disciples. You know, this is not my church. You know that. I was gone for 45 days, and I was getting so jealous seeing all these preachers, Kyle and Pastor Ron and Brother Tim, Pastor Arza and Pastor Castalis preaching in this church. This is Christ's church. You belong to him. Be faithful to him. Be fishers of men. He will make you that. That is the only way the church is a light and salt to this world, a help to this world, a hope for this world, is that if we retain our Lord as the head of the church and we are disciples of him, now, we depend on him to do this in us, but I think it's right for us to be reminded that is the prior priority. He is the preeminent one. He is our priority. We follow him.